This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Inga Simpson, welcome to Better Reading. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to talk to you, Cheryl. I really um, have been watching your career over the years and seeing you grow. I really, I didn't know that you had two PhDs, but I will introduce you and then we'll get to that. Inga is the writer of acclaimed novels, including Where the Trees Were, Mr. Wig and Ness, which was longlisted for the Miles Franklin Award and the Stella Prize. She has undertaken two PhDs, as I just said, in both creative writing and the history of Australian nature writers. The Last Woman in the World is her new book, um, and it's about a plague that sweeps through the Australian countryside and it investigates how we treat the world around us. Hugely timely as well. Well, Inga, and congratulations. What a body of work. Now, tell me, two PhDs. Yeah, it's uh, almost embarrassing, isn't it? The first one was in creative writing, which makes sense or made sense to me at the time, sort of wanting to transition from being a professional writer to a creative writer. And that sort of academic framework was a a comfort zone for me. Um, And the creative writing PhD is, you know, you're kind of apprenticed to a more experienced writer. So, you know, that that was great. And then I was offered a scholarship for a English literature PhD, which was my academic background initially, to look at a history of Australian nature writers, as you've mentioned. So that was a project I wanted to do and I was offered a scholarship to do it, you know, under the guise of a PhD with that kind of research support and amazing resources. So mm. I couldn't say no. So I want to go back. Have you always been a writer? Like did you um, uh, take me right back to where it all started? And so when you were little, did you think that you were going to be a writer? Yeah, I mean it was the first thing I verbalised to my parents. I would have been quite young, um, primary school. I said, oh, I want want to be a writer. My parents were very helpful. They said, well, that's not really a thing. That's not a career. (laughs) You don't earn any money and you can't train for it. And both of those things were kind of true at the time. So I put it out of my head. Um, but I ended up, you know, I studied English literature at uni and languages and ended up being a researcher and a professional writer anyway. And at a certain point in my career, I'd kind of gone a fair way up the ladder and had a, a disappointment. You know, I'd gone for a big, big promotion. I didn't get it. And In academia. No, I worked for the public service. Mainly. Oh, right. Yeah, okay. federal public service. So Parliament yeah. and then the Commonwealth Ombudsman. And, wow. you know, I missed out on this opportunity and that I, I thought I'd been groomed for and deserved. And the feedback from the interview was I needed to study some administrative law. And when I looked through the university handbooks, which was still a physical thing in those days, 
The idea of studying after work on my own time at my own expense did not appeal to me until I saw that creative writing was a thing. So I was in my mid, mid late 30s when I saw that and that's when I started the creative writing PhD. Um, you know, and it was another four or five years till I got anything published, a short story, and I think it was 10 years almost to the day from starting that degree to when my first novel, Mr. Wig, came out. So you're talking about, you know, you're writing professionally, I guess, and that kind of writing is different to creative writing. It's like, you know, a lawyer. I often interview lawyers who've written crime fiction or whatever. And I often think, oh, God, is that left brain, right brain? Talk to me about that transition. Yeah, it's very different. And, I mean, yeah, you're right. It is like lawyers writing, particularly for the ombudsman. You know, passive voice is a great skill in the public service because you write about things without apportioning blame to anyone. But, you know, passive voice in fiction, you know, writing for a real audience is is awful. But it did teach me how to be succinct, you know, to the point uh, and exact, you know, to say exactly what I meant, you know, that that was important. And those research skills, I guess. But yeah, it took a long time to have the confidence to really exercise you know, the depth and breadth of my, my imagination and to come up with a character like Mr. Wig or tr- Talking Trees, you know, that's a long way from what I, the dry old reports I wrote. So, yeah, I it was always, a good training gar- ground in a way. I mean, and we had good editors, particularly in Parliament and the Ombudsman's Office. I mean, I was not a very good grammarian or even a very good structurer of sentences. So, you know, I learned some things. Mm. It's interesting to me. I mean, you know, we I, I've spoken to hundreds of authors now since we launched this podcast. And also I've been in the industry a long time. So I've I've often spoken to writers and the styles and the approach just vary so greatly. But for me as a reader, it is when the story, the idea, and the craft come together, that's when I think you have a good book not just learning, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine it's not just learning how to be a creative writer, it's marrying that idea up into a process. Yeah, that's right. Somehow the the technical side of it, or the skills and technical aspects, which you can learn, you know, enabling your imagination at some point and, and a story almost taking over, you know, I think you have to give yourself, it takes a long time to learn how to give the story space Mm. how to trust your imagination or, I mean, I don't even really think it's necessarily all from my mind, but um, almost tapping into something larger, but to give yourself room to allow that to come to the forefront. And then your craft, if you like, is just shaping that rather than the other way around. I think I know what you mean. The other When it's the other way around, the technical side first, you know, you can trample all over a good story. Mm. I want to just go back to that. For you, when you were writing for government, were you in the back of your mind thinking the whole time, I've got stories to tell? Like, is this a medium really for me? Or do I want to explore the idea of storytelling, if you like? It wasn't a constant voice. I mean, at times when I got fed up with administrivia and manageria, I would have vague ideas of making a tree change and writing a book. But, yeah, I don't know that I had pressing stories, you know, trying to to work their way out of me. That really didn't come until I moved to the Sunshine Coast hinterland and made a tree change. That that was kind of the imaginative space I needed. I needed to be back in nature and I didn't even know. You know, I was just caught up in this story we were sold, you know, about having a career and climbing the ladder and accumulating assets. So talk to me about the tree change. 
so um, I hadn't even quite finished my creative writing PhD and uh, I was living in Brisbane and my partner at the time and I dreamed of, yeah, getting away uh, out of the city, uh, having a bit of physical and, and creative space around us. She was a writer as well and, yeah, we talked about it, but then there's really you know, something we might do in the future, but then this really cute place came up and we went and had a look at it and, you know, we didn't even really think it through before making an offer on it. And so <laughs> within six months we were gone, all pretty rash and ridiculous. But, yeah, it really did change my life. It was this cute little cedar cottage right inside a kind of a forest. You know, it was 10 acres and later we bought the neighbouring block, so it was 20. But, yeah, pretty significant tree, some original trees and completely surrounded by forest and birds and animals and completely exposed to all of the elements. Yeah, I don't know somehow that. So that, you'd left your job by then? I hadn't. I was still working in the city and commuted. But oh, yeah, right. from, okay. from that moment, I was backing away. I had to put out the door. Mm. And I think first I got a day at home and then I reduced my hours. I went part time and eventually I, I quit. Mm. <laughs> and did you quit because you then knew that you're going to write something? You're going to write some fiction? Yeah, I was already writing. I think I was already writing Mr. Wig by then and I'd had a few things published. It was becoming increasingly difficult to to manage everything. We had bought the place next door and we were running a writer's retreat. Um, We had two little kids and the commuting, it just something had to give. But, yeah, when I quit it was still on a hope, you know. Mm. I was writing but it wasn't like there was a career or an income really waiting for me. I just did it. Yeah, it became unviable. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tell me about your writing school. Uh, Yeah, we bought the property next door, which again was really rash. And, um, you know, they had been adjoining properties, so it felt like we're putting them back together. It gave us even more space and it had been our dream to run a writer's retreat, which is a crazier dream than writing, being a writer. yeah, it was quite a big house and a very um, grand sort of common areas and gardens and creeks running either side of it, some views out into the valley, hinterland valley. And, yeah, we set it up. We started running workshops and retreats and offering it up to people wanting to get away, writing. Yeah, for a couple of years that was that was great fun. But um, we did buy at a very bad time just heading into the GFC, so... It was one of the factors that, you know, led to the end of that chapter as well. With your writer's retreat, um, tell me a little bit about that. So did you run classes, like how to write classes? So some workshops and the retreats would include time for people to write Mm. but Mm. also sessions on 
different aspects of writing, whether it be character or uh, setting and description, which was, you know, we would share the teaching. So I would do setting and description or nature writing or sort of a, a workshop or a class each day, but then also time to mm. write and giving them feedback on their on their written work that would, mm. we would have read beforehand. So they were kind of tailored retreats for a small group of people. Yeah. And, yeah, sometimes workshops and sometimes people, sometimes people just you know, I rented it for a week and we might pop over to give them a bit of feedback on their work and see how they were going, that sort of thing. Because um, it's such a solitary on. job, isn't it, that those things are really important? Yeah, it is, particularly when you're starting out. It's so easy to lose hope mm-hmm. <laughs> and to, you know, just not be sure whether it's working or whether you're on the right, right track, you know. So to get some feedback on an early draft is tremendously important. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it still is. It doesn't matter. How many books you've written? Then the book that you're working on is still it's still a new a new project, a new child, and just as terrifying as the first one. Um, I follow um, Candace Fox, the Australian crime writer, which whom I love. She's so quirky and wonderful, um, and I follow her on Facebook. And she, I don't know if she's still doing them. She was doing them for a while, uh, where she would it was a particular day and time. Uh, you might know about this, and then she would just people would just get online with her and write. And in their own space. So it was during COVID. So everybody's writing where they're writing. And, you know, I I used to watch it and see, oh, there were 20 people there or 30 people there (laughs) and everybody saying, oh, I wrote 5,000 words or whatever. And I wondered what the incentive was. And it's not that she was teaching writing, right, but it was just pulling a group together where you just wrote together. And I thought that that was really quite interesting. Yeah, I think. Uh, a lot of people have gone a bit crazy, stir crazy, you know, trying to just write in their on their own in, a, in their garret during COVID. You know, we it sounds ideal for the introvert and the writer, but we do need some kind of structure and some kind of sense that there's a purpose to it all. And I guess that is just solidarity, isn't it? You know, mm-hmm. writing with other people and maybe I've done a fair bit of teaching in person and the writing exercises that you said in class. Everyone's sitting there writing in response to some prompt that you've given them, you know, for 10 minutes or 15 minutes. And some of that work that's, you know, not in privacy or in solitude, they're sitting next to each other in silence, but together in a common purpose. Some of the best writing I've ever heard comes out of those exercises. You know, people surprise themselves. So maybe that's part of it too, just a bit more purpose and structure to it. Solidarity. Yeah, yeah, of course. So what's, I mean, this is something I've been missing, like in COVID, people say, oh, you must love working from home. And But I've missed the banter of the team in the office. I've missed, we have worked really effectively from home and I've got a super, I mean, super team They've all, and young people and, and people my age and everybody has taken to it. However, I feel that sometimes we've missed bigger ideas or we've missed opportunities because there is nothing like just standing up and saying to somebody, what do you think? Well, you don't get that spontaneity when you're working from home on your own. No, or that kind of bouncing off each other, no. that different dynamic, that energy that yeah. to people together can produce. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, I work from home normally, but so in a way nothing's different except that I'm missing out on all of the in-person stuff. So the festivals, mm-hmm. um, teaching in person rather than just online, um, mm-hmm seeing my peers Mm. at events or festivals. I'm going to go back to Mr Wig and ask you, when you decided to write that, 
Did you kind of approach it as a project, like a job? This is my job now. And were you, you know, at your desk at nine o'clock? And how, how did you approach the writing of fiction? Yeah, I brought that work ethic that I still had, you know, from um, being employed at that time to that book. I wrote a, a couple of books before Mr. Wig, and I used to write, you know, my routine really was as a result of that, writing while I was working full-time and studying full-time. Yeah, I would yeah. get up, go to the gym. I was still living in Brisbane. Get up, walk along the boardwalk to the gym, come back, have a shower, have breakfast at my desk and write for one hour before I caught the bus to work. Oh, wow. And I had to produce about a 1,000 words in that hour um, and I've slowed down since. But, yeah, it was one hour and over the course of a year, that's a book. So I still had that in a sense. So I'd be up early, straight up after breakfast, up to the studio. I would be straight up to my writing studio and I'd write for an hour or two. You yeah. know? And then there were other things to do, kids to pick up, take to school. Of course. You know, running a writer's retreat, still working. You know, so it was really stealing that hour or two at best. Um, you just you just told me you had written before. What made Mr. Wig the book that you thought was the book? I think it's the book that got picked up, not about yeah. not what, what I thought. I think something just came together. I I really drew on the landscape where I grew up, um, and to an extent, my grandfather and his orchard, which has become a mythical thing in my mind. So. I set out to write the great Australian novel, you know, set in rural Australia. I thought, well, I can do this. Mm. And um, Not ambitious. Could... Not ambitious at no, all. No, no, no pressure. <laughs> yeah. so it was meant to be a very serious, big, epic novel. I'm sick of reading these gothic novels, I thought, set in rural Australia. And that's not my experience of the landscape or growing up on a property. Yeah, and it just wasn't happening until Mr. Wig's fruit trees started talking to each other. And then I started just having fun with that book. So, I mean, I felt like his voice came out fully formed. So something aligned there, the landscape, that character. Um, I had did have a suggestion, some feedback from an editor who suggested writing a character, you know, further away from myself. I tended to write, you know, pretty close to home. And so an old man in, in the sort of, twilight years of his life I thought well what could be more different from me and somehow you know that worked and his voice just came out like that maybe the third chapter Mm. and it came together and you know I was lucky enough to be offered a publishing contract and and it wasn't straight up there was a, a process you know I had some feedback on the book from the publisher and then the chance to resubmit it and then on the basis of that you know it was published so it's luck too, it's getting that opportunity, you know, someone, yeah. a particular person reading the book and resonating with them. Yeah, and reading it at the right time. There's all of that, isn't there? Uh, yeah. Tell me about your latest book, The Last Woman in the World. <laughs> well, it's bit, couldn't be more different from Mr. Wig, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the protagonist is a woman in her 40s, uh, a glass artist who has retreated from the world. She lives sort of by a river and a forest, not far from the town, but far enough that no one can just wander in. She's almost fortified herself against the world. Everything is, there's no technology, no connections for her, no connectivity until someone knocks on the door. A young woman with her child, with an elaborate story about the world kind of having come to a halt outside and the baby is sick and they need her help. Uh, and she has to decide 
whether she'll go back out into the world and help them mm. or turn them away. Did you start writing this pre-COVID or during COVID? No, well, before COVID and before the bushfires. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 So I was trying to finalise the first draft. I had a deadline. Yeah. And the bushfires were underway and were, yeah, in the end it stopped me delivering because I was evacuated and had no power and no internet and no phone. So, and then I kind of rewrote the book with mm. the fires in it. It's been shaped by events and then, you know, through the drafting process, COVID happened and has developed and redeveloped. Uh, so, yeah, that. All of those events have shaped the book as well. Do you think that these events have shaped your writing for now um, and to come? It's actually a very big question. Yeah. Uh, not so much COVID, though COVID has no doubt changed the world and the writing world just like all other professions and perhaps it's yet to be seen how that will uh, shape my life and my writing. Uh, the fires definitely uh, for me, there, you know, most people talk at the moment about COVID. I'm still talking and thinking and feeling about the fires. Yeah, there's before fires and after fires. For me, that changed my life profoundly and my kind of emotional landscape, if you like. And for me, just to make this clear, I was evacuated a couple of times and that was stressful. Mm-hmm. But it's really, it's much bigger than that. Where I live, 90% of our forests were burnt and some of them will never recover and those that will recover will not be what they were you know there were very severe fires um, very close to me Mm. Um, and sort of everywhere I go and all these places where I used to walk um, and have walked since I was a child and walked and camped so it's it went on for months and it's still going on in a way like that recovery is very slow and a lot of trees are being felled in areas that have survived fire, which is distressing, mm. you know, so much loss of wildlife and so on. There are ongoing battles to be fought. But the depth and breadth of the damage caused by the fires, I found very difficult to accept. And if I have accepted it, it's sort of at this with this bargain that, yeah, all of my writing from now on will be environmental. Mm. Or, and it was a bargain with yourself? Yeah, I struggled to find a way to go on, yeah. You know, and there's a grieving process. Of course. Like any other loss and uh, how do you measure this loss? I mean, I don't know. And, again, it's ongoing, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, bargain with myself. Well, I will keep going that this yeah. is what I I can do. And do you think it was made worse with uh, COVID and the lockdown? But then yeah, definitely. Came- Definitely everyone's attention went, you know, there's quite a lot of momentum that had accumulated in our community, in our broader community, Um, you know, people marching on Parliament House, demanding action on climate change. And I think we'd reached a really critical point. And then COVID has presented a whole, whole range of new challenges for government and individuals and communities and pushed it off the front of the stove. Um, We're taking all the resources. Yeah, yeah, and everyone's energy, you know, everyone's energy. And a lot of things have gone on that I've seen um, under the cover of that, you know, illegal clearing, um, councils just taking out any living thing left by the side of the road or around an airport. You know, but I kind of see them as the same thing. I I see COVID and the fires all as a symptom of the same Mm -hmm. 
thing. But yeah, and my own energy as well. I mean, coming out of the fires into, for me, quarantine and then lockdown, that was a tough time. I had just turned 50 and yeah, was in in the middle of grieving the fires and um, the damage to my kind of region. It was a tough time to be locked up alone. Yeah. Inga Simpson, uh, we're out of time and thank you so much for your time. Um, It was lovely chatting with you. Thanks, Cheryl. Yeah, really good talking with you. Thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.